Welcome to Music History Monday for October 18th, 2021. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is Victor Ullmann, the Musical Bard of Terezin. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark the death on October 18, 1944, 77 years ago today, of the composer and pianist Victor Ullmann in a gas chamber at the concentration and death camp of Auschwitz-Birkenau in Nazi-occupied Poland. Last week's Music History Monday focused on a soft rock song entitled Je t'aime moi non plus by the French singer-songwriter, author, filmmaker, and actor Serge Gainsbourg, 1928-1991, and recorded in 1969 by Gainsbourg and the English singer, songwriter, and actress Jane Birkin, born 1946. Musically, the song is, pardon, Beaucoup de Merde. Nevertheless, it climbed to number one on the charts across the globe. That's because over the course of the song, Ms. Birkin's heavy breathing leads to a simulated orgasm at the climax of the song. As we observed last week, sex sells. We also observed that those arbiters of morality, of which there is never a dearth, declared the song obscene, and it was banned from radio play by hundreds, if not thousands, of radio stations. I pointed out then, as I would again now, that at an obscenity level, from 1 to 10, Je t'aime rates maybe a 0.5, while the tragic fate of the Czechoslovakian composer Viktor Ullmann, 1898-1944, rates an 11. As has been done in the past, today's Music History Monday is in fact a two-parter, one that will be continued and concluded in tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes post. Today's post will offer up some historical background, background that addresses the destruction of the sovereign nation of Czechoslovakia on March 15, 1939, and Victor Ullmann's life until September 1942, at which time he was deported to the hybrid concentration camp and ghetto in the Czech town of Terezin, or what the Germans called Theresienstadt. Historical background. Adolf Hitler, 1889 to 1945, was appointed German Chancellor, meaning Head of State, on January 30, 1933. The arrogant fools that saw to his appointment, principal among them the former Chancellor Franz von Papen, 1879 to 1969, and the influential German businessman and politician Alfred Hugenberg, 1865 to 1951, believed that Hitler could be controlled, 
and that the fanatical support of Hitler's base could be used to their advantage. They were tragically wrong on all counts. Having come to power legally, Hitler quickly destroyed the democratic process that had brought him to power. His agenda was clear to anyone who had read his biography slash manifesto Mein Kampf, My Struggle, which had been published in 1925. That agenda? The destruction of the German parliamentary system, the eradication of international Jewry and communism, and the expansion of the German Reich across Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union as far as the Ural Mountains, the so-called gateway to Asia, some 870 miles east of Moscow. We will not recount the lies, demagoguery, brutality, and coercion Hitler employed to consolidate his power between 1933 and 1936. Ten years ago, we in the United States were incapable of imagining how such a thing could have happened in modern Europe. I fear we have today become all too aware of how such a thing did indeed happen. In March of 1936, Hitler took a gamble. Nazi Germany reoccupied the Rhineland, Germany's western border, which had been demilitarized after Germany's defeat in World War I. By goose-stepping into the Rhineland, Hitler and his minions flat-out abrogated the Treaty of Versailles and the Locarno Pact. This re-militarization of the Rhineland was driven by domestic politics, not unlike the United States' invasion of Iraq. Hitler needed to shore up his relationship with the army leadership and his right-wing power base. Painfully, we now know that if France and Britain had acted in defense of the treaties, Germany's generals were prepared to toss Hitler and his thugs out on their ears. But France and Britain did not act. Their populations were still traumatized by the First World War, the war to end all wars, a war they had presumably won 18 years before in 1918. Emboldened by international acquiescence, Hitler marched his army into Austria on March 12, 1938, the day after a well-planned coup d'etat removed the legally elected Austrian government. Germany immediately annexed Austria, calling the whole shebang Anschluss, meaning the link-up. A plebiscite was held the following month in which the Austrian people were asked to ratify the Anschluss. The Nazis claimed 99.7% of the electorate voted in favor of Anschluss. Sure they did. If England and France were going to stop Hitler, now was their last best chance. But they did nothing. Further emboldened, Hitler contrived to occupy portions of Czechoslovakia, presumably to protect the ethnic German population that lived there. Negotiations over the fate of Czechoslovakia fell to the English Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, 1869 to 1940. History 
has been very kind, exceedingly kind, unjustifiably kind to Neville Chamberlain, who is still perceived as a dignified, Edwardian, umbrella-toting, old-world man of peace, whose actions were motivated by fair play and personal honor, a well-intentioned but naive innocent who had about as much chance of negotiating successfully with Hitler as a gerbil does with a wolf. Don't you believe a word of it? Chamberlain was no dupe. He and his foreign secretary, Edward Wood, 1st Earl of Halifax, had decided that Germany should be rearmed and Hitler should expand his Reich for two reasons. One, they assumed that by encouraging Hitler to expand his Reich eastwards, Hitler would keep his hands off of the British Empire. And two, Germany's eastward expansion was seen as a bulwark against Soviet communism, which was considered the far greater threat at the time. So it was that in November of 1938, thanks to the collusion and miscalculation of the Western powers, huge chunks of Czechoslovakia were ceded to and occupied by Nazi Germany. Four months later, in March of 1939, Germany occupied most of the remainder of the country. Without firing a single shot, Hitler had managed to occupy and annex two sovereign nations, Austria and Czechoslovakia. In doing so, he managed to convince some of his generals and most of his people that he was indeed the heaven-sent genius Führer leader that he claimed to be. At the same time, he put the rest of Europe on notice that if they hadn't already figured it out, he and his people were truly bad news. On September 1, 1939, just five and a half months after the final dismemberment of Czechoslovakia, the hot war in Europe began when Germany invaded Poland. All of the just described events were witnessed by an increasingly alarmed Czech composer named Viktor Ullmann. Viktor Ullmann, 1898 to 1944. Ullmann was born on January 1st, 1898 in Chesky Tishin, or just Tishin, which today is located in the Moravian Silesian region of the Czech Republic. Like many Jews born in what was then the Austro-Hungarian Empire, he spoke German growing up. Ullmann came from a sophisticated, well-to-do family that placed a premium on assimilation. As such, both his parents converted to Catholicism before he was born. Not that that would do any good. In the end, the conversion would fool no one. For the Nazis, it was once a Jew, always a Jew. Thanks to his conversion, Victor's father, Maximilian, was allowed to pursue a career in the Austro-Hungarian army. During World War I, he reached the rank of colonel and was ennobled. Knowing, as we do now, what was to become of the presumably assimilated Catholic Ullmann family, we can only wonder if Victor Ullmann understood, at some basic, perhaps even unconscious level, 
of how alienated he truly was from the society immediately around him? Probably not. But in retrospect, his alienation is clear as check crystal. Writing in the New York Times on March 23, 2003, the American composer, writer, and conductor David Schiff noted what was, in fact, Ullmann's existential alienation this way, quote, Like such other assimilated German-speaking Czech Jews as Franz Kafka and Gustav Mahler, Ullmann lived a life of multiple estrangements, cut off from Czech nationalism, German anti-Semitism, and Jewish orthodoxy." Unquote. Rather than follow her husband around from one military posting to the next, Ullmann's mother, Malvina, moved to Vienna in 1909, where Victor attended grammar school and then high school. An extremely talented pianist and piano student of the famed pianist and composer Eduard Steuermann, 1892-1964, and a budding composer, Ullmann came to the attention of Arnold Schoenberg, 1874-1951, and his circle of students. But before he could become part of that circle, there was military duty to be fulfilled, and upon graduation in 1916, the 18-year-old Victor Ullmann, the son of a professional soldier, enlisted in the Austrian army. He was posted to the Isonzo Front, an area that straddles present-day Italy and Slovenia. He saw action in the battles of Isonzo, was decorated for his bravery, and finished his service as a lieutenant. To his great fortune, in early 1918, Ullmann was granted a so-called study leave to return to Vienna to study at the university. As a result, he managed to avoid the carnage that brought hostilities to their conclusion in November 1918. Back in Vienna, the now 20-year-old Ullmann took some classes in law at the University of Vienna. But the big event, the transformative event in his life, was being accepted into Arnold Schoenberg's compositional seminar. And despite the fact that he only worked with Schoenberg for a year, Ullmann left Vienna in 1919, prepared to embark on a professional career. He moved to Prague, where he joined the staff of the Neues Deutsches Theater, the New German Opera Theater, which was directed by Schoenberg's former teacher and later Schoenberg's student and brother-in-law, the composer Alexander von Zemlinsky, 1871-1942. Ullmann rapidly rose through the artistic ranks. He was promoted to chorus master and repetiteur, meaning chief vocal coach, in 1920, and then to conductor in 1922. All the while, he composed, and he experienced his first major successes with his Sieben Lieder, his Seven Songs with Piano of 1923, and his Octet of 1924. As it developed, Ullmann's career was strikingly like that of his hero, Gustav Mahler, 40 years before. Ullmann, like Mahler, built his reputation as an opera conductor while concurrently building his rep as a composer. And then 
an odd interlude. In 1931, at the age of 33, having fallen under the influence of the esoteric philosopher Rudolf Steiner, 1861-1925, Ullmann moved to Stuttgart, Germany, and opened an anthroposophical bookshop. Anthroposophy is a philosophy that assumes, quote, the existence of an objective, intellectually comprehensible spiritual world accessible to human experience, unquote. For our information, anthroposophy is that body of teaching that inspired the creation of Waldorf education in 1968. Again, we are reminded here of Gustav Mahler and his restless search for a philosophical construct and religious belief that could assuage his own epic sense of alienation. As it turned out, Ullmann's interlude in the anthroposophical book trade didn't last for long. When the Nazis came to power in January 1933, he realized that, assimilated Catholic or not, it was time for him to clear out of Germany and clear out he did, returning to Prague. He became a major player on the music scene there, conducting, composing, teaching, writing reviews, and doing radio broadcasts. He got married three times in total, had kids, and lived his life. Victor Ullmann's marriages. His first wife was Marta Koreff, a fellow student of Arnold Schoenberg's. Victor and Marta were married in Vienna in May of 1919, immediately before their move to her native Prague. She died at the extermination camp at Treblinka in 1942 at the age of 47. While we don't know when Victor and Marta were divorced, we do know that he remarried in 1931 to a woman named Annie Winternitz. She was murdered at Auschwitz-Birkenau in 1944. Together, Annie and Victor had three kids, a daughter named Felicia and two sons, Max and Johannes. Victor and Annie were divorced as well. Their divorce was finalized in August 1941. Okay, we step back and recall a previous sentence. After returning to Prague in 1933, Ullmann got married, had kids, and lived his life. Until March 15, 1939, that is. That's when the German army entered Prague and Hitler proclaimed Bohemia and Moravia to henceforth be a German protectorate. With that, the sovereign nation of Czechoslovakia ceased to exist. From that moment in 1939, the anti-Jewish Nuremberg laws were applied to all Czech Jews, stripping them of their right to work in most professions and to own property and businesses, depriving them of their civil rights and citizenship, and thus rendering them stateless. For Victor Ullmann, unlike 1933 when he vamoosed out of Stuttgart and the book business, there was no escape this time around. Oh, he tried. He wrote letters to friends and colleagues around the world in an attempt to get his family out, but to no avail. In mid-1939, Victor and his wife Annie 
made the sort of choice that is the stuff of parental nightmares. They sent their two youngest children, Felicia and Johannes, to England on a transport sponsored by the British Committee for Children in Prague, part of the so-called Kindertransport. Victor and Annie Ullman never saw Felicia and Johannes again. Somehow, Ullman continued to compose, including his Piano Concerto No. 2 of 1939, which will be one of the recommended works in tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes post. Into the Frying Pan Following Ullmann's divorce from his wife Annie in August 1941, he was faced with a new and terrifying predicament. In October of 1941, word got out that 5,000 single and stateless Jewish men were to be deported to the Wutz Ghetto in Poland. The Wutz Ghetto, that's spelled L-O-D-Z and pronounced Wutz. You know, we can only wonder if Victor's recently divorced wife, Annie, got a chuckle out of this predicament. Desperate to avoid deportation, Ullmann married his girlfriend, Elizabeth Frank Meisel, on October 15, 1941. His new ID card from the Office of Jewish Community Affairs in Prague, identifying him as a married man, arrived just in time to save him, and his scheduled deportation was canceled. But it was a temporary respite. In November 1941, the acting protector of Bohemia and Moravia, SS officer Reinhard Heydrich, 1904-1942, ordered the creation of the Terezin or Theresienstadt camp, a combination ghetto concentration camp in the town of Terezin, roughly 20 miles north of Prague. Jews from across Czechoslovakia immediately began to be deported to and concentrated in this ghetto. In September of 1942, Ullmann's luck finally ran out. And Ullmann, his wife Elizabeth, his ex-wife Annie, and his son Maximilian were deported to Terezin. We pick up from here in tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes post. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.